Good morning. It's good to be here this morning. Thank you for for letting me come up here and just share something that the Lord has given me to share. Um, as you know, we're going through a series of how to be rich. And so let me ask you this. How many of you want to be blessed? Okay. Not everybody's hand went up, so let me ask again. How many of you want to be blessed? Yay! (laughs) Okay. Now, let's rephrase the question. How many of you think that you are blessed? Okay, okay, most of you. All right, now here's the tough one. How many of you have looked or are currently kind of rolling through the screenplay of your life, and you're kind of thinking, Man, I don't really feel like I've been blessed in my life. Anybody? Okay, everybody close your eyes, and then we'll raise our hands, right? Yeah, nobody wants to admit to that. So, all right, well, we're going to be spending some time this morning in 2 Kings, and I'm just going to kind of go through this story that's in 2 Kings, and we're going to break it apart and see what the Lord has for us this morning. Um, so if you want to join me on your phone app, or if you have your hard copy of the Bible, whichever you prefer, open it up to Second Kings chapter 6, and we're going to go ahead and get started. So a little context here. So um, I always, when I'm teaching, like to give context of what we're walking into, because when we're studying the Bible, when we're reading the Bible, We need to have that context. We're never supposed to take things out of context or take a story out of context or a verse or anything like that. So I'm going to kind of summarize chapter 6 a little bit for you so you know what we're walking into into 2 Kings chapter 7, okay? So picture the scene. King Solomon has died. He's been dead for a little while now, and the kingdom of Israel has split into two. You have... Israel to the north, and their capital city is Samaria. And then you have the kingdom of Judah to the south, and their capital city is Jerusalem. So because there was a split, you can imagine that things are pretty tense between these two kingdoms, okay? So this story focuses on the city of Samaria. So we're in the kingdom of Israel, and things do not look good for Samaria, Okay, um, so when we pick up in Second Kings 6, we find Samaria's in the middle of being besieged. So they are being surrounded by an enemy army. And as we go through, I just have some questions that I want you to kind of be thinking about as we spend our time here together today. And I want you to think about, do you have a conflict in your life? Do you have tension between somebody or multiple people in your life? Do you have this issue where you're like waging war and you're just butting heads with somebody? And maybe just like in this story, it's been going on for a long time because this isn't the first time that Syria has tried to besiege Israel. This has literally been going on for decades. So I want you to be thinking, maybe that's the thing that has weighed me down is this conflict that I've had with somebody or a certain 
group of people or someone in my family or at my job or whatever it may be, but I don't really feel blessed because I've been living in this state of conflict. Maybe that resonates with somebody. Um, So we're going to talk about what it means to besiege. I always forget that I have technology, so here you go. Besiege means uh, to bind, confine, cramp, secure, shut in, shut up, and show hostility to. Um, So this is a war tactic that they used in ancient times when their cities had walls around them. And so what would happen is the enemy army would come up and they would surround the city and it would prevent anything from going out and anything coming in. And so it would lead to basically starving the people out. And when you're being besieged, basically you have two choices. You can either surrender or you can die. Both of them probably aren't good, right? And this is a successful strategy that Syria has used because we find in 2 Kings 6.25 that Samaria was in a great state of famine. And things were so bad in the city that they were eating, eating donkey heads, dove poop, and they resorted to cannibalism of their children. And so another question for you is, how bad have things gotten in your life? I can probably hope and venture to guess it's not as bad as you eating donkey heads and bird poop. But let's talk about what's happening mentally. Are you in a famine mentally? What about emotionally? Have you become completely apathetic that you just don't feel anything anymore? What about spiritually? Has the enemy been firing darts at you into your mind and into your soul and into your heart? And so you feel like you're bound, you feel confined, you're cramped, you're shut in. It's preventing you, it's shutting you up from praising, it's shutting you up from reading God's word, it's shutting you up from praying to him and asking for help. I have been in that state mentally, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. What are the three things I said? Those three. Um, And when I'm in that state, when I'm so focused on what's happening in my life, I really don't feel blessed. And so that is where we find the city of Samaria. The king of Israel is uh, King Jehoram. And not only does he have this tense relationship with Judah and this conflict warring with Syria. Second Kings chapter three tells us that he was a king who did evil in the sight of the Lord. So that means that him and God's prophet of Elisha, not of Elisha, God's prophet Elisha, and him really didn't get along. Now I really like Elisha because he's a like straight to it, straight to the gut, no <laughs> doesn't sugarcoat anything. Here's God's word. Here's what God says. You either do it or you don't. And that's the kind of person that I tend to be. And so King Jehoram and Elisha just are constantly butting heads because they just don't get along. And so at the end of chapter six, there's a small glimpse into King Jehoram and him just being grieved and angry. Like you can sense it in what he says, but he's not grieved and angry with himself. 
He's not angry at how he's been a king and how he's lived his life and the sin that's been in his life. He's not angry at the people of Israel and them following his lead. He's angry at Elisha. And ultimately, he's angry at God. And so let me ask you, have you ever been angry at God? And as we're talking today, I want you to think, do I see some common threads in this story? It may not be as severe or blatant, but you know what? I have been angry at God at times. You know what? I have been in a famine, and I've lived through a tough time. All right. I promise we're getting into chapter 7. Just remember, context rule. So this is the environment that we're walking into in chapter 7, okay? And this is what I want you to take first off today, is that even though King Jehoram blamed God for the catastrophic calamity that had come upon Israel and the city of Samaria, God still had a good word for his nation And God has a good word for you. No matter what you've endured, no matter what you're currently enduring, God has a good word for you. And maybe it will come this morning. All right. So, again, Samaria is in a state of famine. They've been in this state for several months. Things are not looking good. And Elisha tells the king's messenger in the beginning of chapter 7 that basically in the span of 24 hours, the economic situation is going to completely flip upside down in the city. Instead of scarcity, there's going to be abundance. What if God told you today that tomorrow deliverance was coming? What if God said, Megan, when you wake up tomorrow, you're no longer going to struggle with insecurities. You're no longer going to feel worthless. I want you to personalize it for you. Maybe your famine is, what if God said, you know what? Tomorrow your mortgage is going to be paid. What if God told you, you know what? Tomorrow your son or your daughter is going to come home. What if tomorrow when you wake up, that disease that you have is healed completely? What if tomorrow your boss finally recognizes how hard you work? What if tomorrow when you wake up, your spouse is going to finally respect you and love you? Whatever your battle is, I want you to think about it. What if God said, tomorrow this is done? When God speaks things to me like that in my heart, I so much want to cling to it and grasp it and hold on to it. But if I'm honest with you, which I should be honest with you, more times than not, I am just like the officer who responded to Elisha. And basically what he said, there we go, is, Look, and this is in chapter 7, verse 2. Look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? So basically, that's fancy words for like, are you serious? Like, 
do you even know what's going on in our city, Elisha? Like, this, things are really bad. And you're saying that this is going to be completely reversed tomorrow? Are you serious? Even if God could create windows in heaven and the abundance of heaven poured out of them, like, this would not happen. Like, it's not even possible, Elisha. That's kind of what's happening in that very weird phrase. Here's the reality. The officer doubted the power of God, and so do I. The officer doubted the creativity of God, and so do I. The officer doubted the messenger of God. In this case, it was Elisha. In my case and in your case, it's the Holy Spirit. And the Lord speaks things to our hearts all the time. And how many times do I go, are you serious, God? There's no way. That's not going to happen. There's no way you could do that thing. Are you serious? When we have a state or a filter of unbelief, it leads us to feel like we're not blessed. Unbelief dares to question the truthfulness of God's promise. It says things like, this is a new thing and therefore it can't be true. It says that this is a sudden thing and it can't be true. Because remember, he said 24 hours. In 24 hours, this is going to be a totally different city. That's pretty sudden. And unbelief goes, no, that can't happen. Unbelief says there's no way to accomplish this thing. This mountain you're facing, this thing that has been haunting you for decades, your entire life. There's no way you can accomplish it. There's no way you can overachieve it. There's no way you can overcome it. Unbelief says that there is only one way God can work, and this isn't it. And unbelief says that even if God does do something, it's not going to be enough. So it's something for you to wrestle with to say, you know what? Maybe I do have some unbelief. Maybe I do struggle with this and I need the Lord to work through it with me so that I'm not processing God's promises and the things that he speaks to me through this filter anymore. And I can trust and walk with him. Are you feeling encouraged and blessed this morning? God's got a good word. It's coming. I promise. It's coming. All right. We're going to jump to verse 3. So now the lens of the story shifts. And so I love how God's lens can be really broad sometimes. And then he like zooms in on people. And so the story of the of this story right here, it shifts from the king now to these four people in the kingdom, right? And it zooms in and we find out that now... There were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, Why do we sit here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, then the famine is in the city, and we will die there. And if we sit here, we die also. Now, therefore, come, and let's go over to the camp of the Arameans, or the Syrians. If they spare us, we will live, and if they kill us, we will but die. And they rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Arameans, and when they had come to the outskirts of the camp, to their surprise, no one was there. 
So in the culture of what's happening, these four men had leprosy, which was a skin disease that was contagious. And so they were not allowed in the city at all. They were outcasts. They were shunned. They were untouchable. It was you stay over here and you don't come into our city at all. Okay. Their logic, therefore, was completely sound because they knew that if they stayed where they were, they for sure were going to die. Because even if food did come into the city, they wouldn't get any because they're the lowest of the low. Okay, so they were like, if we stay here, we're going to die. And so they had a different perspective of, but you know what? There's a camp outside, and they got some food. They got all sorts of stuff. So why don't we go see if maybe they'll help us? They're probably going to kill us, but at least it's a small chance because here we for sure am not going to get any food, right? We're for sure going to die here. So they decided they're going to go to the enemy's camp. Do you feel as though you're an outcast? Do you feel that you're untouchable? That God's love and grace and mercy and provision can't come anywhere near you? Maybe that's what is struggling for you to think, I don't have a blessed life, Megan. I've done too much. I've seen too much. Too much has been done to me. There's no way God could save me. So therefore, I am not blessed. Maybe that's what makes it difficult to see. All right. So I want you to picture this scene. There, it's like a gigantic army outside of this city, okay? Now, my husband doesn't advertise it, and some of you may not know this, but he served in the Marine Corps, and he was deployed to Iraq in 2003. And I'm going to totally botch all of these military terms, so I'm really sorry to everybody who served. Just please forgive me. I asked him, when I asked him this question, I said, how many, how many men were in your camp? And he was like, Megan, we weren't camping. Like, that's not what we were doing when we were in Iraq. And I was like, okay, what, I didn't mean to insinuate you were camping, but how many men were stationed when you went into Iraq and you guys were doing whatever soldiers do, right? I don't know. I'm not a soldier. Thank you for your service, sweetie. Um, and he said, there were probably anywhere between 3,000 and 5,000 men at a time, right? That's a lot of mouths to feed. Like, my, my oldest son is going to be seven. He eats more than I do. So I can't even imagine feeding like 5,000 18-year-old Marines. Like, that's a lot of food. A lot of food, right? And so in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 24, it tells us that the king of Syria had gathered all, all his army. So uh, that's probably a lot more than 5,000 men, right? It's like all. That's probably tens of thousands of men. And they are all waiting outside of the city gates. So imagine the amount of food and provisions and water and clothes and weapons and, and money and everything else that was in that camp. It was a lot. And this is like the central hub of their army because 
all of the army is there. Okay? So, the four leprous men, they walk into this gigantic, fully stocked, like, camp. What's the proper term, honey? It's not camp. What is it? Base. There we go. They walk onto this base that could house tens of thousands of men, and it's fully stocked. And there isn't a single person there. Not a guard. Not like a lonely scraggler of a soldier. Like there's nobody there. It is a ghost town. Okay? And it tells us in verse 6 that, For the Lord had caused the army of the Arameans to hear a sound of chariots and a sound of horses, even the sounds of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come after us. Therefore they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their donkeys, even the camp, just as it was, and fled for their lives. So here they are, four men. They've been stricken with disease. And they've been living in a city that's had a famine for several months. But the reality is, is that their famine has been lasting for years. Because they're not allowed to go into the city even when it's thriving. They're not allowed to work. They're not allowed to interact with people. Things are not good. And they haven't been for a very long time for these four leprous men. And so can you imagine not having your basic needs met, and then you walk onto this base, not camp, base, and everything that you could ever want is there. Food, water, clothes, money, wine, all sorts of stuff, right? Weapons to defend you. Everything is there when you've had nothing for so long. And so here's what happens. When the lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they entered one tent and ate and drank and carried from there silver and gold and clothes and went and hid them. And then they returned and entered another tent and carried from there also and went and hid them. So I just imagine these men like walking into the tent and there's like a gigantic table of cheesecake and Reese's peanut butter cups and they are just like ferociously stuffing their faces. Not really. Those things weren't there. I'm just using some sanctified imagination because that's what I would do. But they're just they're just gathering and they're just like, oh my gosh, and they're ravenous and they're just eating and drinking and gathering whatever they can carry and going and putting in a place and hiding it and coming back again. Because when we've experienced traumatic events in our lives, we hoard. That's exactly what we do because that theory of unbelief that we practice from says, even though God's providing right now, it's not enough. And I need to save this just in case. And so they're going from these tents and they're gathering everything that they can. Have you been stricken by something like leprosy and you felt famished? 
And do you therefore clamor to cling to anything that comes your way, any little thing that comes your way and you're clinging to it? When we start to hoard and cling to things, it becomes our comfort, it becomes our satisfaction, and it becomes our Savior that doesn't really save us. The lepers have walked into this unexpected windfall of provision. They've walked into a blessing. Remember, they're, they were expecting to die. Like, they were like, we're going to go to this camp, and we're probably going to die. Like, that's the end game, most likely. And so here they are. They're hoarding everything that they find. Unbelief tells them that even if God provides, it won't be enough. I'm going to cling to this just in case. And so one thing that we need to know is that the lepers didn't do anything to walk into this blessing. God blesses us to show us how different he is from us. Most of us practice from a mentality of, I'm receiving this because I was good. I'm receiving this because I earned it. I'm receiving this because I am good. And that's not how God operates. God says, I'm going to bless. The lepers didn't do anything, right? They just, like, were walking into camp, like, we're probably going to die, but maybe we'll get a piece of bread before we do. Like, they are not thinking in any way, shape, or form of anything except we're just this hungry, and God bless them. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. I'm not like you, says the Lord. I'm human, and when I'm operating in my flesh, if I don't like you, I'm not going to bless you. But that's not how God operates, right? He says, you know what? I'm going to bless you because I do love you, even though, even though you have leprosy. I love you. And I'm going to bless you to show you who I am. And so here's the good word that the Lord really wants you to wrestle with today. Because the reality is, it was the disease that brought the blessing. Those four men left their city... Because they had leprosy, knowing we're not going to, we're going to die if we stay here for sure because of our condition. So you know what? We're going to just go ahead and go try. We're going to go see (laughs) if we can actually survive one more day. If they didn't have leprosy, it's highly likely that they probably would have stayed in the city. And they would have died if they had stayed in the city. But it was because they had been stricken with disease. It's because they were outcasts. It's because they were untouchable. They were already facing death. That they were able to look at a different perspective and try something new. I'm not saying that 
God looks at your life and looks at the difficult circumstances that you've lived through and that you are living through right now. I'm not saying that he's like, Megan, why are you not grateful that you were the daughter of addicts? Like, really, why are you not thankful for this? You should be thankful for this. It's something good, Megan. Why don't you praise me for this? I'm not saying that. Please hear my heart. But what God has done in my life is he said, Megan, if you will let me use this, I can redeem it and turn it into something beautiful. And that's ultimately what happened with the lepers. I am the daughter of two addicts and a long history of addicts before them. Grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents. And because of that, I come from a broken home, and I have a very deep wound of rejection that's permeated every relationship in my life because they chose their lifestyle over me. And that's how I lived a lot of my life, is thinking that way. I can tell you it has not been fun. It has not been easy. And I have had to wrestle. Many of you have prayed with me. Pray for my husband because he still has to pray for me. But you've seen me wrestle and you've been there for me. And here's what God has done. He said, Megan, I have entrusted you with this. What are you going to do with it? And so I became a drug counselor. And I get to work with people that struggle with addiction because I'm able to see that they have worth. I'm able to see that they have value when maybe others don't see that in them because I've been on the receiving end. I have that empathy. I have that compassion. I wouldn't have had that if I didn't have my story, if I didn't have my leprosy. I probably wouldn't be a very good counselor if I didn't have that knowledge. And now I look back on my life and I can think, God, I'm so thankful that you entrusted me with that. It was super duper hard. It still is super duper hard. One of the promises that God told me was, Megan, I'm going to break the link of generational sin in your family. And I was like, And then he said, and you're going to be the broken link. (laughs) What? Wait a minute. Wait. What do you mean I'm going to be the broken link? I have to break the link in the chain. And it's going to be you. And that's super duper hard. But I am so thankful for it. I'm so thankful when I see... Through my wrestling with God, I see it in my marriage. I see it with my kids. I see it in our home. I see it with my friendships, and it's beautiful. And every every season, I'm like, all right, God, let's take one more step. All right, you can break me a little bit more. Not too, Don't be too rough. Don't be too rough. Okay? And so you can see as we come back to the word that the lepers in their frantic state of let's gather as much as we can, that they have this insight from the Lord, most likely. doesn't say that, but I'm using some sanctified imagination in the words of Dr. Evans. But 
they come to a place and they have a conversation. It says, then they said to one another, we are not doing right. This is a day of good news, but we are keeping silent. If we wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city, and they told them, saying, We came to the camp of the Arameans, and behold, there was no one there, nor the voice of a man, only the horses tied and donkeys tied in the tents just as they were. So in their state, they're like grabbing all the cheesecake and they're so excited and they're grabbing everything that they can. They have this moment of like, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's an entire city of people that are starving to the point that they're eating their children starving. And here we are in a base that can provide everything that they need and we're not telling them. We got to go tell them. Dr. Evans, who I love, says that a blessing is enjoying, experiencing, and transferring the goodness of God in your life. And so because of their disease, they were able to go and find the blessing for their city. And they were able to take that back to the people to save them. Are you sharing what you have? Maybe it's tangible things like your finances or your home or making meals for people or taking people to appointments that may not have a vehicle, using your gifts, those types of things. Are you sharing them? Are you sharing your story? Because I think that's one of the ways that we hoard God's blessing is we hoard our testimony. We hoard the things that God has done in our lives, and we don't share it with people. not saying you have to post it all over social media, but when you encounter that person that has the same thing or a similar situation that you've lived through, that God has redeemed, are you sharing it? Are you saying, you know what, let me tell you my story. Let me tell you what God did in my life. All right, so the lepers get to the city. They tell the gatekeepers, hey, there's like an entire base of food out here if you guys would like to come get some, basically, you know, in Megan's reframe. Um, Now, King Jehoram hears the news, and he's not having any of it. He is very much like, this is a war tactic. This is not okay. This is a plot. I am not doing this to my people. He says, whoops, I'll come back to that point in just a second. Nope, nope, there we go. Um, He says, I will now tell you what the Arameans have done to us. They know that we're hungry, therefore they have gone from the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying when they come out of the city, we're going to capture them alive and get into the city. So he's like, in Megan's imagination, like waving his hand, nope, 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 we are not going out there. This is crazy. This is a plot. I'm not doing this. We're all staying in the city. This is me. I'm the king. I make the rules, and this is what we're doing. 
unbelief dares to question what God is doing. There's a lot of conflict happening all around King Jehoram. And if I had to venture to guess, there was a lot of conflict happening inside of King Jehoram as well. Okay? And when he hears that the very thing, that thing, that enemy camp that's been outside of his city for months, that's the thing that's going to provide for my people, provide for me, I don't want that. There's no way. There is absolutely no way that God would use this. Because remember, he's angry at God. Don't let what you've been enduring lead to unbelief that permeates your soul so that you miss God's provision and blessing. Thankfully, there is a servant that was willing to speak up to the king. Now, how many of you have ever spoken to a king before? None of you. Okay, cool. I have not spoken to a king either, but I will tell you that I work in an environment where I speak to judges. I speak to um, attorneys and all sorts of people. I've been in situations where I've had to disagree with a judge, and I'm not a lawyer, so that's fun. But, and I'm like, I really don't want to get arrested for contempt of court if I make this judge upset right now, which I might have been known to do. So, I can kind of sort of relate to this, like, uh, with all due respect, I'm going to disagree, which is kind of what this servant did. So one of his servants said, please, please let some men take five of the horses which remain, which are left in the city. Behold, they will be in any case like all the multitude of Israel who are left in it. Behold, he's repeating himself. They will be, in any case, like all the multitude of Israel who have already perished. So let us send and see. He is begging the king, please, please, we are eating our children. It is bad. We are going to die. Can we just see? Please send somebody. It can be really hard to be the person who speaks up. I'm an Italian-German, so I'm super blunt and super honest, like really bad. God has really had to, Megan, (laughs) let's be more gentle. Pray for me. He's still working on me in that area. But I can tell you that we need people to speak up. I need people to speak up in my life. We need people to speak up in church. We need people to speak up in our culture. We need to be speaking up. If that servant hadn't spoken up to the king, he very well have may have said, you know what, we're not going out. And they all could have died with an entire base of food and provisions for their people right outside the gate. Speak up. All right, verse 14. They took, therefore, two chariots with horses, and the king sent after the army of the Arameans. Just time out. I'm just imagining, like, the two soldiers that are like, cool, we got two chariots, and we're going out to an army. So if they're still there, 
we're toast. Like, it's just like a funny, anyways. Okay, so um, they went after them to the Jordan, and behold, all the way was full of clothes and equipment, which the Arameans had thrown away in their haste. Then the messengers returned and told the king. So the people went out and plundered the camp of the Arameans. So here's what the Lord wants you to wrestle with. It was the blessing of provision came from the blessing of disease and the enemy camp. The very thing that was sieging them, the very thing that was keeping them inside was the thing that provided for them to survive. And so the question for you to wrestle with this week is what blessings in your life do you have that maybe you've never considered blessings? And therefore, how are you going to take those blessings and use them to bless others? I take my blessing and I work in it in my career. That may not be your story and that's 100% okay. But maybe your story is you're a single mom, and if you are, oh, man, you are a hero. You are amazing. And so maybe you can relate to our missionary, Cece, who works with single moms and their children in China. And you're like, I know what that's like. And so I'm going to be praying for them. I'm going to send a blessing to them when I can. Maybe you can relate to our missionaries, the state of family who are training up missionaries to go and tell the world about Jesus. And you're like, you know what? I needed a savior. Somebody took the time to tell me about Jesus. So I'm going to bless them. I'm going to be praying for them. Or maybe you can resonate with Karen, who's in Africa, and she's working with the Sudanese refugees. And you're like, oh, that's my heart right there because I had a super hard life. I know what that's like. Maybe I wasn't a refugee, but I know what it's like to have a hard life. And that is super my heart and my passion. And I'm going to be praying for her. And I'm going to send a blessing to her. Today is Mission Sunday, so we are going to be taking an offering. So it's just something for you to think about. What is it in my life that I'm able to look at and say, you know what, God, redeem it. And help me to use this to be a blessing to others. If God's pricking your heart today, I pray that you will start being a transference of the blessing. Because the reality is, is that if we aren't transferring the blessing, if we aren't blessing others through what God has blessed us, we prostitute the blessing. And God has asked me, and he's asking you, Megan, how many blessings have I given you that you've prostituted? Too many. Too many. Church, you have been blessed. You do have something to give. You have a story to tell. And it is my prayer that you don't sit waiting until you die, being confined, being shut in, being shut up by the enemy, having hostility shown to you. I pray that you go and see what God's provided for you, and he continues to provide for you. 
if the ushers want to come up and we'll pray for the offering and then we will be dismissed thank you for your time today and listening and thank you Lord.